right, everyone. We are actually back after the usual long hiatus. Maybe even more than usual, but we're back. Episode 61, and we are finally ready to commence our next deep dive. We've only got really two more albums left, although we've kind of got three because we're going to go back and revisit The Crossing at some point. But it was between Peace in Our Time and Driving to Damascus. You guys told us you wanted us to do Peace in Our Time. And my co-host, Spine, is ecstatic about that choice. Aren't you, Spine? Hello, friends. How are we? <laughs> yes. We uh, we are going to do probably the album that's the most... Uh, well, I don't know if divisive is the right word, but it's it could be the right word. But I think most big country fans probably look at this album in a light like, uh, this is when everything changed. This is when... The band took a left turn, a wrong turn. Even the band says that. But there's still a lot of people who like this album, too. Some who love this album. And I have kind of differing feelings about it that, that run the gamut from both of those emotions. So both of those kings of emotion. So um, it should be an interesting discussion. A lot going on in this year hmm. and a lot happening with the band. And uh, as usual, Svine has done a great bit of research and will help us navigate our way through big country in 1988. So anyway, how are you doing? It's fine. I'm fine. It's uh, it's good to be back. Uh, like you said, sometimes you have a break that lasts longer than we planned to, but uh, we've known for a while we were going to do this album. So while we have sort of <laughs> waited for the stars to align, there has been research happening and we've sort of gotten into the mindset and that, for me was necessary because i think peace in our time it's it's no secret it's my least favorite big country album one has got to be least favorite and so for me it's this one this is the album i never reach for this is the album i i but since we started doing this podcast really and uh, getting back into the band after the long break uh, with stewart leaving us and uh, all of that. I think this was the album I didn't reach for out of all the albums during all this time. The first time I listened to this since the 90s was when I bought the, the remaster, the two CD set some years mm. ago. Uh, and I listened to it to compare and uh, check out really did it do a good job. And they did do a good job on that one. Um, and then I kind of put it away again. So the preparation time now has been pull it out, listen to it. And I kind of know the album well. I, I really played it quite a lot back in the day. And, and that's an interesting difference we discovered between you and me, where you said you, you got more into the album over the years, whereas my sort of the best year for this album with me was probably the first year it was out. And since then, it's just deteriorated, <laughs> gotten worse. Uh, but uh, it's I I don't feel dislike to the album. I feel more uh, indifference. Yes, interesting. That I, and you made that point clear to me too. Then, and, and I understand that completely. It, it, for me, it's it's definitely not my least favorite big country album. I think I put it probably around five, just uh, behind. You know, there's always that trilogy for me and for for many fans out there. And I think Buffalo Skinners comes next, and then Peace in Our Time for me. That's a very high placement. I I know it is, and and it's weird because. I recognize all the issues with the album that we will talk about, and there are all kinds of things about it that I do not like and wish had been different. But for some reason, I listen to this album a lot. I, I can't quite put my finger on it. I, I I really like certain aspects of the production. Um, you know, people out there are ready to reach through the speakers and and retroactively strangle me now. But 
and and it's not the things that you think. I mean, I'm I'm not a fan of the keyboard sound. I'm not a fan of the the poppy uh, Jefferson Starship approach that Peter Wolf took. But there are certain elements of it from a from like um, an airy feel of the album. It's got a lot of space to it. It's got the drums. I think do sound great. And Mark has been on record saying that this is the favorite his favorite uh, drum sound that's ever been recorded of his. And there's some weird things about it that I kind of like, but. But yeah, I have a lot of issues as well with the with some of the songs, some of the production uh, decisions, and just the whole just the whole approach to that whole period, as far as clearly them trying to make big country break in America, hmm. and and as an American, it's kind of interesting. But I but I've heard this from a lot of American fans. It's like we we didn't want them to be. American. We didn't want them to be Americanized. What, what we loved about them was the fact that they were so different and they had such a unique feel about them. And, and maybe that wasn't meant for massive mainstream appeal. In fact, I, I'm sh- I don't think it was really. No. And it's very interesting. Those exact words you said there, Jen told me two days ago. That the, she said oh, interesting. their appeal is they sound Scottish, they sound different, they sound like they sound like the sound where they come from, you know. So that was their appeal. And if you look at the first couple of hits, uh, they did have hits from the first album in the States. They didn't need to sound American to have those hits. And yes. they didn't need to to sound American for those albums to do well. So uh, who knows? You know, you can go back and forth on that. And I think um, as we'll, we'll get into it, um, and I, I sense we probably need to get into it soon, the people <laughs> who made these decisions... Uh, were kind of that that's what worked for a lot of bands uh, but big country is not like other bands so uh, that approach didn't do them any favors at the end of the day no it really didn't it didn't in fact it had exactly the the opposite effect as intended it really drove people away the the people that they wanted to to uh, pull in were not interested and the people that they wanted to would have wanted to keep in the fold were not interested anymore <laughs> many so uh, except for there, there were a number of us people who obviously stayed, stayed loyal to the cause. But, uh, yeah, it, it really screwed up their career. And really, it's it's amazing that they continued after that and continued for a long time. They did break up, though, for a very short time. They did. That's true. That's true. They did, didn't they? Yep, yeah, that's right. And they lost Mark Brzezicki. Yeah. yeah, they lost Mark Brzezicki in the in the fray. So it certainly took its toll. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. But okay, uh, I think we'll start by uh, by going back to 1988, and uh, why don't you set the stage like you often do with uh, what was happening in 1988, what was going on, and what what were these happening sounds that uh, they wanted the band to sound like? Very briefly, this is kind of what was happening in the singles chart uh, the week that the, the, that piece in our time was released, which was. Uh, I've seen different things. I saw September 19th in Alan Glenn's book, and I see September 9th on John's page. So I'm going to go with September 9th here. But anyway, in the uh, either way, there's going to be similar uh, crossovers. But in the UK, a lot of songs I don't re- recognize. Top 10 in the UK, He Ain't Heavy, He's My Brother by The Hollies. Groovy Kind of Love by Phil Collins. Ugh. Teardrops, Womack and Womack. Lovely Day by Bill Withers. Nothing Can Divide Us by Jason Donovan. I Quit by... Bros, never heard of it. <laughs> the Race <laughs> by Yellow. Um, Big Fun by Inner City. Domino Dancing by the Pet Shop Boys. And The Only Way Up 
The Only Way Is Up by Yaz and the Plastic Population. That was number 10. I've, I've never heard of half of those songs, more than half. Um, in the U.S., a lot more uh, obvious songs for me anyway, obviously. But number one was Sweet Child of Mine by Guns N' Roses. Um, I forgot that they were, they've been around for that long when I saw this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Simply Irresistible by Robert Palmer, number two. Perfect World by Huey Lewis and the News. Monkey by George Michael was number four. When It's Love by Van Halen is five. Interesting. Fast Car by Tracy Chapman is number six. I didn't remember that getting so high. Um, I, I love that song, actually. Uh, I'll Always Love You by Taylor Dane. If It Isn't Love by New Edition. Everybody's favorite, Don't Worry, Be Happy by Bobby McFerrin is number nine. <laughs> now, that, that's going to be in everyone's song, everyone's head all day long. And thank you for the finger snaps there. And number 10, a song I probably thankfully have no memory of whatsoever nobody's fool by kenny loggins so <laughs> yeah I, and there's kind of an interesting gamut there of of hard rock stuff at least on the u.s charts uh, yeah. hard rock stuff with guns and roses which was number one and then the more keyboard heavy um stuff that might fit like the piece in our time sound for example when i see in it, when it's love by van halen that's kind of an interesting uh, comparison to what Big Country was doing because here, here you have a guitar-based band in Van Halen, and they really had a lot of keyboard-heavy '80s synthy sounds on that album when it came out. Yeah, 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 for so, sure they did. Yeah, so I mean, who knows how that all uh, factored into the decisions to go the way they went? But anyway, so there are your there are your charts. Those are the charts, and the keyboards was really the the latter day or latter '80s. Uh, sound it was sort of prevalent uh, and even bands like judas priest and maiden if you're going to continue with the the metal theme included keyboard sounds on their albums like turbo lover with priest everybody knows oh, that yeah, there has that thing yeah. and uh if you know maiden wasted years and that album it was more guitar sense sounds that was integrated so even on those hardened metal bands of the time uh, you sort of got that and it was so uh, so established and uh, i guess that's where we're coming from and we uh, we need to put ourselves a little bit in uh, in the 1988 frame of mind when we talk about this album because pissing on it from 2016 is like shooting fish in a barrel <laughs> right <laughs> that's right. that's that's uh, that's too easy but but if you you need to look back at what was going on and then keep that a little bit in mind otherwise you're kind of doing the album uh, perhaps too strong a disservice but even so um we know how we felt when that came out back then <laughs> and we should not forget that either greetings tom and fine from long beach california this is steve coulter thank you for the opportunity to submit my opinion of peace in our time for your deep dive this album is uh, obviously a very divisive one in the big country pantheon, obviously mostly due to the production of Peter Wolf and his keyboards and singing ladies and all of the things that really put the 1988 timestamp on this record. At the time, I remember being a, uh, I guess I was only 20 years old at the time, maybe not even 20 when this album came out. I was super into the sound. I loved that clear, clean sound that CDs offered. And although it wasn't the big country that I remembered most recently before this record, I was kind of into it at the time. I, I remember I worked in a compact disc store and I 
just used to blast it in the store and we loved the sound of it and it was super clean and Broken Heart I remember was probably my favorite at that time but boy did that not age well it aged about as well as how the band looks in the middle of this booklet as I look at it well that's some sweet hair Bruce love that anyway um great songs on here would have been amazing to hear this album recorded in a completely different way I mean can you imagine what Steve Lillywhite would have done with this well, anyway, I'm sure you guys will dive in very deep on your feelings on the production and keyboards of Peter Wolf. But if I had to look back and pick a favorite song today versus back in 1988, I think I Could Be Happy Here would probably be my favorite. I think it's the one that seems to me the most big country sounding song in retrospect. But who knows? It's uh, something we'll never we'll never know, right? But uh, looking forward to hearing the deep dive and looking forward to uh, a new podcast. So cheers from the West Coast of the United States and hope to talk to you guys again soon. Take care. Bye. Just to add to your 1988 time capsule, I have a timeline for the band of 1988, and we're not going to spend tons of time on it, but I'm going to run quickly through it because great. it was it was an interesting year for the band. They did a lot of weird stuff, you could say, a lot of unique stuff that they probably didn't do again. And the tour, really, for Peace in Our Time, didn't start until '89 uh, fully. So '88 was more the setup and preparing a lot of stuff and doing interesting promotional activities. Uh, of course, the year starts. In January 23rd, the band travels to Los Angeles to record the Peace in Our Time album. And at this time, um, they have already met uh, Peter Wolf, or at least Stuart met him in advance. They had uh, selected songs. They, they knew what they were going to do, more or less. And they spent February and March in L.A. recording this album. And these are happy days for the band. We should remember what Bruce said uh, when we talked about each album in turn and he said those were fun days in Los Angeles they decided to be good boys to record it uh, during the week and had the weekends off and th- they had a blast it was happy days and that probably is part of the memories of the album for them to uh, a fondness the four of them together in LA living the life really as rock stars and uh, that was that that was nice it's, it's kind of nice to think back on, on their behalf that uh, they were doing all those things while working with Peter Wolf, which uh, they probably, like like Bruce said, we decided to be good boys. And uh, whether they had regrets, whether they liked it or not, they had decided to give it a shot. This was their attempt. And uh, the happy days kind of got a very extra happy punctuation in April when uh, Bruce Watson marries his longtime girlfriend, Sandra McAllister, who we all know since then, of course, as Sandra Watson. Mm-hmm. Still happily together, and that sort of punctuated the whole L.A. Uh, stay. So very happy time for the band. Lots of positives coming out of it. Uh, when they come home in April, they have a little time off before starting preparations for album promos and live gigs. Um, and that starts really in June. Uh, in June 19th, they play their first piece in our time show. They do it in East Berlin. So they're already sort of behind the Iron Curtain there, supporting Brian Adams. So I guess uh, with him there too, it can't have been a big sort of dangerous trip behind the Iron Curtain. But uh, <laughs> I'm sure uh, with, uh, with Brian Adams, I'm sure everything was uh, set up quite smoothly. 
And they had a festival in Finland as well in July before they flew to Australia on July 16th. And this is a very interesting trip. We talked about it on uh, on the Australian episode recently. They flew over Andy Inkster's house, not to play for him, but to record music videos in his backyard. <laughs> <laughs> and they stayed there for quite some time. They stayed there. They, they touched down on July 16th and they stayed until the 26th. So 10 days to shoot videos for King of Emotion and 13 Valleys, filming in uh, with the Noom, with Richard Lowenstein directing, staying for quite a while and not fitting in a single live performance. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's, it's really weird. Yeah, and even Bruce remarked about that on the stage, as we heard in the Australian uh, episode podcast yeah. that we did. And he's just like, why did we do that? Why did we not play here? And why uh, why fly all the way to Australia? It's, it's, it's literally halfway around the world from our location here. So that's... Yeah. Um, you couldn't pick a more awkward sort of trip from a time zone. And uh, you know, I'm sure they could have found a lot of locations. Why, why not film in the Scottish Highlands? And um, apart from log- logistics issues, especially everybody who's seen the documentary on the making of Monty Python and the Holy Grail know that it was a nightmare for them to film in the Scottish Highlands. But uh, I'm sure they could have <laughs> found some locations that uh, would have worked. But uh, they got those videos in the can. They stayed there 10 days, they flew back, and uh, July 29th, they went back to Finland to play another festival. Interestingly, that's that's two Finland shows in July of that year. Uh, in August, 3rd, 4th, 5th, um, Stuart is on promotional visit in Germany. And that promotional visit is interesting because he plays uh, acoustic versions of some of the songs on radio show, which later showed up on B-sides and on remasters of the album. So we got good acoustic Stuart solo live versions of those from uh, German radio shows. So that's nice. Yeah, that's great. August 8th, just a couple of days later, that's when we get the first taste of the coming album. King of Emotion is released on single, 7-inch, 12-inch, CD single, CD video single, and even a cassette single. So that was all formats out there. And um, after that, the live appearances start picking up where you get the, the Hultsfred Festival in Sweden, uh, the Terry Vogan show on TV, Wire TV show, Top of the Pops, Music Box, all of this in August. And it ends in, uh, in Estonia with the Estonia Rock Summer Festival in Tallinn. Uh, so that's kind of like just a flurry of summer dates that they got on the festival as they did the summit. It's, it's kind of good to be keyed into all those. It's good money and it's very visible, good, good shows to be part of. September 9th, I'm going with that date too, and I actually have this date from uh, Wikipedia, so that that supports John, uh, whether John uses Wikipedia or Wikipedia uses John, they agree. Uh, the, the piece in our time album is released on an, on an unsuspecting world. And that leads to a couple more live appearances, the Sheffield Sport uh, Aid Festival on September 11th, which was partially televised. So that's interesting, that, that footage exists out there. And the Phonogram Conference in Eastbourne on September 16th. And then we get into really the big, uh, the big hoopla, the, the PR angle of the album. With uh, September 22nd, they have their performance at the Soviet Embassy in London. And this was many things. This was album launch. It was a promotional event, and it was also really officially getting their visas for the Russian trip that was coming up. That's right. <laughs> so I think that was the key thing, and then they played some something. And, and it was our a, first look at the yeah. singing ladies, too. Or were they there I, in some of the other shows? I can't remember. They were there. 
Okay. Okay. And they were very muted in the embassy shows. They were actually just standing there. They didn't move their arms and legs. <laughs> they uh, they were at the side, and but, but but they were there, looming with their presence. <laughs> and um, I I didn't actually see that footage until years later. Yeah. Years and years later. It's interesting footage. It's it's a very interesting. Uh, situation because they're clearly not playing to their fans they're playing to people who are clearly interested in checking it out but they don't know the music exactly (laughs) yeah there's a very timid feeling about the whole thing it's like everyone's kind of trying to feel each other out and see what's what the overriding emotion is there but uh yeah it's it's pretty cool i like i like the idea that they did that but um yeah it's it's an odd performance it's a very odd performance, but it's uh, it's certainly something different. And uh, perhaps it came a little too soon because the, um, things were about to happen with Perestroika and uh, the fall of the wall and the, the crumbling of the Soviet and the, the emergence of Russia as a, as a more semblance of a normal nation. So things were happening, but that was more 18990 that it was all cemented. So they kind of, I think they were lumped in, and I think especially in America, but this is interesting. If you're going to break America and you choose almost an angle that most people will will associate with communism, mm-hmm. and I know that word is very loaded in America, but it's not a positive word. And and that's kind of <laughs> what, they, what they lumped themselves into, the Soviet embassy playing in Russia. Yeah, hi, America, we made this album for you. <laughs> <laughs> right. I think it makes sense from the perspective, for me anyway, in that, and we've talked about this on the show before too, is, is that that was such a huge um, topic of conversation and of the news at the time, you know, the, uh, the Soviet Union and all the changes happening there and what that would mean for America. And, and there was a lot of, um, there were years of, of mutual suspicion and, and yeah. fear mongering here between the two superpowers, you know, which one would push the button first, which one would launch the missiles and, it, it was in movies and and everything else. You know, we were we were kind of brought up to fear the Russians and and um, worry about what they might do. And and I'm sure the Russian people were taught the same about America. So, yeah, I mean, from my perspective, that was still something that that made sense when I saw that uh, saw that approach, uh, kind of pitting America and Russia against each other, and hopefully the, putting this call out to bring them together. In fact, I think the um, I think the the album art for I guess it was the Peace in Our Time single, which had kind of a combination of the American flag and the Russian flag. Uh, I thought that could have been and probably should have been the the album cover because that's that's a striking image and certainly much mm. more striking than the album cover that they that they came up with, which was kind of which was kind of cool, but it was also kind of like a a mess in a way of <laughs> this big montage that's hard yes. to figure out what's going on. But you have that one simple image of the American flag and the Russian flag. I think that would have been really eye-catching and really powerful. But that's mm. beyond the point, beyond the uh, the discussion, I guess. No, but it makes total sense because the, that single cover does much better what the album cover tries to do, which is to mix elements from Russia and America together yeah. in one big happy utopia. <laughs> yeah. But you have to really study it to see it. And it's it's well hidden amongst the flurry of detail. Right. And what would have been perfect, though, and as you as you allude to, is if they would have followed that Russian performance or Russian mini tour and then come to America, you know, and play there and, and somehow connected to the two with the press as well. Yes. Yeah, you know, that, 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 that would have that, made some sense. That would have made sense. And that, that's a good point. And maybe that's what's missing for me, that uh, it, it seemed um, 
for for an album that catered to America, the promo activities seemed to cater more to uh, towards East Block. Yeah. Or, but they tried to to build bridge, and that that's what they wanted to do. They wanted to be ambassadors for for culture. I think that was Ian Grant's master plan, and they wanted to build a bridge. Hence the album cover, which included elements from both places, and uh, and the single cover, which is even more striking in that regard. But uh, you know, be that as it may, what what we have today is a very interesting time in the band's career, where they they played the embassy, and a week later they traveled to Russia. <laughs> Let's turn to the new album, Peace in Our Time. Quite an apt title, considering you've just played your first gig in Russia and went down very well. Was it just a coincidence that you've got a series of gigs in the Soviet Union and the album seems to be suggesting, through its very title, yeah, Peace no, Between Men? Yeah, there, there is a, a duality in the, the album title that it can also be interpreted as an ironic type of statement as well. I like to have the, that kind of ambiguity in my work. And yeah, really, as a coincidence, we've been trying to come in and play in the East since, uh, or since we were basically not long after we started gigging, you know. And uh, so, for some reason, I think probably because of the Perestroika and, and the Glasnost, that, that Russia is, or the Soviet Union is opening itself up a little bit more to to, uh, to Westerners, and we are losing a little bit of our suspicions, as are they. And it's so I think it's not been until this year that we've actually been able to to get any concrete uh, replies from people on, on, on coming here to play. So uh, just briefly to, to end the timeline, um, we spent longer on it than I planned to, as, as usual. But uh, it, October 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th is where they played at the Moscow Palace of Sports. For a while, it actually looked like these shows had to be cancelled because of uh, issues with the authorities and they came really close to it not happening because the band had opted to use the private event organizer, Stas Namin, to deal with the setup and practical stuff instead of using the state-appointed organization, Gosconcert. <laughs> and this was not a popular decision, which means that some extra challenges were added and things suddenly took a bit more time. But in the end, they did smooth over it. It did work out, and they played for four nights in that arena and even the shows in that arena too almost ended because if you were if you recall there were there were all kinds of sound problems on the very first show yeah. they had to they had to start they had to stop start stop and they kept restarting the show and and finally they got their sound uh gear working i guess there were some issues with the uh, the russian electrical grid and how that was uh, i don't think it was powerful enough to handle their equipment or something like that but um mm. yeah they had all kinds of issues with that even even the actual performing yeah, and that's a shame because, uh, especially for the first show, a lot of uh, press came with the band. And if you look at the uh, one of the releases, I think it's actually on the release of the show in Russia, there's a CD-DVD double set. And that includes a lot of multimedia stuff, which has all the documents and uh, the travel plans and uh, a lot of stuff. I, I was looking through it earlier. And that also includes a whole setup for all the journalists who were to come with the band. They all had to be pre-approved by the Russian government. Oh, wow, <laughs> so, I don't think I've ever seen any of that stuff. That's news to me. Wow. It's on. Okay, so if if you guys, if anyone out there has that set, I'm sure you know what it is. It's the show in Russia, which was released in a CD case, which contains a CD and a DVD. Mm -hmm. Look, look at that. Put that disc in your computer because it has a multimedia section. You can look at all kinds of documents, PDFs from that time. It's very interesting. Oh, that's really cool. See, I never bought that because i had that stuff already on on video and dvd or whatever <laughs> <laughs> the, the bootleg version um 
Yeah, that that's cool. <laughs> I'd love to see that. It is very cool. Now, maybe I can. Uh, hopefully, I don't break any uh, huge copyright law if I throw a couple of those on uh, on the Great Divide Facebook page. Oh yeah, you should. Another reason to join the Great Divide Facebook page. You look for it out there if you're not a member. I like how you did that. That's a gr- that's great promo. Uh, years of doing this with you, it starts to seep in. <laughs> <laughs> for someone who says he hates to do promos, you you do have a knack for it. <laughs> much, much more than me, anyway. Well, I don't know about that. Uh, after they came back from Moscow, they released a second single, which was Broken Heart, Certain Valleys. came out in October. Uh, and they started doing more promotional tours in October, November, December. And um, the only thing worth mentioning there is they came to Norway for the promo tour in December, they played uh, or sort of lip-synced to Peace in Our Time on Norwegian TV without Bruce. But uh, we talked about that in the past, and Bruce <laughs> said, right. yeah, that, was the, that was the only time I didn't make it. <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> thanks, thanks for bringing up the only time I didn't make it. Uh, and that takes us into 1989 with the full Peace in Our Time tour, lots of shows the first half of that year in particular. So if we look back at the year, the recording of the album in L.A., uh, coming back, starting to do promos, uh, festivals, going to Australia for the videos, the whole Russian thing. And uh, it really was just a lot of setting things up. And I think uh, when I look at all the plans and, and everything they did, they did the right things. And they put in a lot of time to do promo for this, yes. which if you look back at in particular Steel Town, they didn't do it. They toured for two months. It's, it's the shortest tour for any album. And it was halted prematurely for whatever reason and it didn't do anywhere near as much as they did for peace in our time but uh, that brings us back to the album that was the product so despite all these preparations and all these plans you stand or you fall by the product that you're promoting that's right and, and let's remember too i mean that was a great uh timeline by the way but there's one there's one uh, piece of that that I think is important that we didn't talk about, and that's something that happened in 1987, and that's that was called the Under Wraps tour, where they sort of came out and did did a, a tour of, uh, I believe it was more like universities in the UK and that kind of thing, and it wasn't very heavily promoted. But the important thing t- about that, as as it relates to our discussions, is that they performed quite a bit of the songs that would be on Peace in Our Time in what was at the time, a, a much rougher demo form. It, it's almost as if they, they performed them very shortly after writing them and rehearsing them with the band. Because we were developing into a state where, where we knew that we were beginning to really get hold of our confidence as, as a band and understand that we don't have to play 100% all the time for it to be powerful and for it to be emotive, you know, so we, we wanted to go in and, and also just to, to warm the band up for recording and try out the arrangements and see what worked and what wouldn't work and what worked, not so much what worked as a sort of a, for people there, but what would work for us as a band, what we felt comfortable playing, you know, and it was, it worked bloody great, it was a, it was a really, the tour was very special, I have to say, the tour that we did in clubs because it was so intimate and, and really and people who had, had over the past few years had only seen us in, in big halls and stuff were able to come and see us in a very close environment mm-hmm. and uh, smell the sweat of our armpits as it were <laughs> and it was, it was really great the gigs that we did were brilliant if you guys if anyone out there has some of those shows because a number of them do exist on bootleg I've got a, a bunch of them myself but 
it's really interesting to hear them come out and play the early versions of the song Peace in Our Time or uh, Thousand Yard Stare. I think they played um, Starting Crossed. I know they played that. Um, Time for Leaving.
they played all these songs in the same format that you, um, they appeared on the most recent remaster with when the, when you hear the demo versions. Um, very different arrangements in many cases, and uh, it, it's it's interesting because I don't think they did that really any time before or or since where they actually performed songs from an upcoming album. They and did I, it for Driving to Damascus. Yeah, they did do it there. That's true. That's true. They, and yeah, and I should know that because I saw them do it in Nashville. <laughs> in fact, right. um, uh, we, Lee Waterton has a has a quote about this on our Facebook page. Some of you guys, as we recorded, uh, started recording this morning, have been writing some comments, and we may read a couple of them. But he says, uh, I saw them on the Under Wraps tour previewing some of the Peace in Our Time stuff. I clearly remember being really excited after hearing the material they'd come up with, particularly at thousand yard stare in time for leaving and couldn't wait for the album to be unleashed after hearing king of emotion sometime later i was shocked uh this wasn't the bc i knew and loved he says a lot more going on um in that post that would be more pertinent to some of the things we'll talk about later but um i think that that was a, a comment that a lot of people had who saw that tour um and and in a way i kind of felt that way too when i saw the this stuff on driving to damascus uh being performed in nashville I, I was so excited for it, and I was a little less excited by the production of that album, but that's for another discussion. But I guess people felt that probably much in a much more strong uh, note for the piece in our time stuff, because I can't imagine hearing some of that stuff live in that format and then hearing what it actually became on Peace in Our Time. That must have been a, a big mm. disappointment, even more so for than for those of us who just hadn't heard anything but were just disappointed by the sound of Peace in Our Time. But if you but if you actually had your hopes up based on stuff that you had heard, that must have been even more uh, disappointing. It wasn't the same, that's for sure. Yeah, especially if you saw them next time around they came on tour, then it it had drastically changed even then. So yeah, seriously, we never we, we never got those songs again. Those versions of the song were lost in the mists of time. But uh, there we go. Uh, I think um, when we look at um, we talk about 1987. Obviously, a lot of the setup for going to LA and recording the album, the way it was recorded, happened then. And uh, if we're going to blame someone for this, we should not blame Ian Grant. We should not really blame the band. We should perhaps not even blame Peter Wolf. We should blame, once again, drumroll, <laughs> Dave Bates. <laughs> Dave Bates. Dave Bates. Dave and, uh, and Bates. And I know we both... Found them <laughs> uh, from Alan Glenn's book, uh, Stuart Adams in a Big Country. Th there's um, a bit of a couple of quotes from Commodore Bates uh, in that book. And uh, Dave Bates says, Despite the success of the Seer in Europe and elsewhere, we still couldn't get America on board. And the signings Bates had made for Phonogram afforded him the security to do exactly as he pleased. Uh, when they were going to do the follow-up to the seer, he was the one who came up with an idea that he believed would help reposition them in the U.S. market. Uh, so by the beginning of 88, they went to L.A. working with a producer whose previous credits included Starship <laughs> and the Commodores. And Bates <laughs> commented on this. The hope was that by recording the next big country album in America and being in America, it would have a certain ambiance, a certain atmosphere that the band could work within, and a certain influence. You know, the guys being out there, living out there. I thought by bringing Peter Wolf in, we would end up with something more American-friendly. That was the plan anyway. So there you have it. Those were the thoughts 
that led to the hiring of Peter Wolf, which I also assume was uh, suggested by him, by the company. Uh, Peter Wolf met with Stuart, and uh, they uh, they just decided, okay, let's go for it, because actually the record company is putting some money into flying us out there, getting this Peter Wolf dude, and uh, making an album to, to make a really crack at it. And uh, no matter what reservation you might have about the sound or, or the process, it must feel good to have that backing. I can totally see that. So oh, hence... Sure being good boys and perhaps giving it a shot they're, 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 you might see it as almost believing in you in some regards even though the, the change of sound probably indicates the opposite King of Emotion which is the current hit in England um, the first single we've had in the charts for nearly two years I think uh, what on earth have you been doing in two years uh, uh, quite a lot actually what, what actually happened was our, uh, our contract was up and uh, in the United States at the beginning of last year and so because of the, the, the nature of the band that we are it's, it's uh, important for us to get to know the people that we're actually going to be work with so it took until September of last year for us to, uh, to finally decide that we were going to sign with Warner Brothers in America and by that time Peter who Peter Wolf who had wanted to produce us had actually started working on a different project so we had to wait until December until Peter was free and then uh, we started recording in February of this year, and here we are now. I love Peter Wolf. He's a great, great guy, and he's a great producer. But I just don't think he was the right producer for Big Country. Yeah. Um, a, he had never seen the band live, you know, whereas people like Robin um, Steve Lillywhite had obviously, you know, been at shows and stuff like that and knew what the band were about beforehand. But with Peter, we were just a, a new thing, you know. And he had his ideas about how we should sound, and you know, we were just good boys, and just kind of went along. Stuart Adamson had a comment in Melody Maker in 1990, so this is, of course, a bit after the fact, but it's very interesting, and it pertains to all of this. When uh, uh, the article says, Stuart revealed what went wrong with Peace in Our Time and the departure of Mark. Quote, I think it is very much the end of an era, and the last album was a turning point for us. The bands changed a great deal as well, especially my attitude towards it. For the first time in a couple of years, I've got a clear idea of what I want to do. With the Peace in Our Time album, I think we tried things that didn't work for us, and in retrospect, working with Peter Wolf, a big American producer, was a tangent to the plot. <laughs> Unquote. So this is after the fact. Uh, they They were quick to to see that it hadn't worked they were they were quick to to distance themselves from it um after the fact but uh when you read interviews when the album had just come out uh there's more complimentary things being said and uh, they um they will i'll, I'll sure. get to those as they pertain to the songs we'll get into but a lot of the discussion that we both will get into about this album that's going to center on the producer and the producer was Peter Wolf. Yes. Uh, there's been a lot of confusion over the years as there are two Peter Wolfs in the music industry. So let's just clarify that right away. We have Peter Wolf 1. This is the wrong Peter Wolf. He is the American musician, best known as the lead vocalist for the J. Giles band, from 1967 to 83, and a successful solo career after that. So this is the wrong guy. 
uh, a lot of references exist on the net to this guy being the producer. That is wrong. Yeah, and some people still think that, uh, I've noticed, I've uh, still thought that on our page. Some people still have gotten him confused with uh, the Jay Giles band, Peter Wolf. So, yeah. I think it's always going to be there because it's... <laughs> well, it's funny, I was... I was watching a video of Jefferson Starship um, looking for doing some research. Uh, they were talking about Peter Wolf when there when we built this city came out and that that whole album, which which came out in '85, and they were very quick to say the same thing. They said, "Let's just be clear immediately. This is not the Peter Wolf who most people would know. Yeah. This is uh this is not the American." And it's funny that you in the, some of the comments you read you read. Uh, Peter, the Peter Wolf who produced Peace in Our Time was referred to as a big American producer. He's actually Austrian, and yep. he he was he's born in Austria, and um, I guess they call him a big American producer because he had a lot of hits here in America with you know more American bands. But, um, but that's the sound he was going for. It's a big yeah. American producer. He he wanted a big American sound, so that's probably more like it. But just to finish, the first Peter Wolf, the wrong one. He actually turns seventy years old this year, and he's still an active musician. So the fact that he has been active for all this year and putting himself out there can't have helped. <laughs> He's the most <laughs> visible of these two Peter Wolves. But the second Peter Wolf is the right one. Uh, Peter F. Wolf, if you will. We're going to call him Peter Wolf. Whenever we say Peter Wolf after this point, this is the one we're talking about. And, and like you said, he's Austrian. Uh, he studied classical piano and jazz in his younger years before moving to America in his early 20s, which means uh, the first half of the 1970s. Uh, where he played keyboards with Frank Zappa, after which he formed a band called Group 87, which we, yeah, everybody's heard of Group 87, right? Uh, he became known as a funky keyboardist there, but he took on a lot of production work and quickly started having that as his main income. And when you look at all the people he worked with, pretty big names. So you said Starship, we mentioned the Commodores, you have Wang Chung. L. DeBarge, Patti LaBelle, Kenny Loggins, Hart, Nick Kershaw, Go West, and of course, Big Country. Oh my God! It's not a bad list in terms of uh, having some success and delivering for a lot of bands. So success, I can see. No, yes, but but <laughs> taste. Yeah. I would. Yeah. Yeah, I guess it depends what you went for. I think Dave Bates wanted success. But uh, yeah, if you remember, Robin Miller had produced Chardet, so that that's certainly not something that you would have thought would go with big country. And I wonder if some of that played into the decision to get Peter Wolf, uh, because it, the seer worked out so well for them and maybe they wanted to continue, go even further that route. Well, this guy worked out and he, yeah. he had done Chardet. So let's get blah, blah, blah. But that was a strike against him. You know, he was <laughs> like, they almost kept it against him that he had worked with these artists and he didn't want it. Right. So, so I don't know how that uh, plays into it all. And, I guess uh, whenever you don't want to use someone after the fact or get someone else into to remix your work, you can say whatever reason you want, and who knows if it's the real reason. But uh, in any case, now we have the band with Peter Wolf. And uh, one album that he did prior to Big Country that we probably should give a little extra attention to is the Knee Deep in the Hoopla by Starship. Ugh. And why is this significant? Uh, well... The sound of that album is exactly the kind of sound that Peter Wolf wanted to bring onto Peace in Our Time. Believe it or not, he entered the pre-production of that album with that direction in his head. Those sounds, those type of arrangements, that direction.
And uh, we should note also that Peter Wolf never saw the band live before working with them. He, he really took them on with minimal knowledge of their sound and in their workings and certainly their history. Uh, that wasn't relevant to him. So he had conversations with Stuart. We know that according to interviews Stuart made at the time, he received demo tapes. A final selection of the songs was made. Uh, where Peter Wolf was kind of the, the final word. Uh, I have a quote from uh, a magazine called Making Music Magazine, which says, the album was recorded and mixed in three months and three weeks, working five days a week with the weekends off in a studio north of Los Angeles. With 28 songs written, the band and producers spent a week in pre-production choosing and arranging the 10 songs that would be on the album. Wow. Stewart said, by the time we went to record it was really easy, the smoothest album I've ever worked on in my life, which is a complimentary thing. So if you take that statement, 28 songs to whittle down from, that's a, that's a fair chunk of, uh, of material. And I actually went through and counted, and how many of these songs do we know about? Uh, I only know about 25, so there are three songs not accounted for. Maybe, maybe mm. my research is, is, is lacking, but to quickly go through it, you have the 10 that ended up on the album, that's 10. And then you have a further 10 tracks, some of which were Ariel tapes, but not all, including The Travelers, On the Shore, Soap is Out, Strikes Back, Starting Crossed, Not Waving But Drowning, When a Drum Beats, Over the Border, Longest Day, Promised Land, Made in Heaven. And then you have some later released Ariel tapes. The one I said now were B-sides. So 10 on the album and 10 B-sides. We actually got 20 songs, so that's not bad. But later, we also got on Rarities Deluxe Edition stuff that wasn't released at the time, which includes Ages of Man, Mary, Christmas Island, You Lose Your Dreams, and Cut Like a Spoon. This adds up to 25 for me. So if anyone out there wants to do the math, find the three songs I'm missing, they might not be out there. You know, it's fairly possible. I really question Ages of a Man being from that period, by the way. I, I'm almost... I'm almost positive that Ages of a Man is from the Driving to Damascus period. It sounds like something from that period. The lyrics are something that, that Stuart would have been writing at the time. And that, that song, I I was aware of it before, too. We'll, we'll have to get into this some other time. But I really think that is a song that does not belong in the Peace in Our Time era. And I'll, I'll try to find out more about that. I know it's on the remaster. But to me, that sticks out like a sore thumb that that does not come from that era but i that's that's just my own opinion but um yeah and i don't disagree with that really but uh, that's how it's been labeled so right let's add that note to that one in which case you have either 24 or 25 songs from that era known hey biglies tim eldred here the subject is peace in our time a great concept that will always be just out of reach that sort of describes the album for me, too. Of all the studio albums, it's the one I put on the least, because it's so out of step with the others. 
not necessarily in a bad way since we've got the context of the full catalog and this one doesn't push anything else aside the way it seemed to back when it first came out. So with the benefit of that context, the part that seems out of reach is the overall mindset. For example, why are so many of the compositions less complex than everything we heard before? And why is the songwriting, for the most part, more on the nose and less poetic? Why do we hear odd instruments and vocal accompaniment that went out of fashion so quickly? Commercial pressures can explain a lot, but there was a point where all the creative decisions were made about what actually got recorded, and we can only lay that at the feet of the band. That said, there's always something in the album that pleasantly surprises me when I do put it on. Broken Heart was one of those songs that branded itself on me like a tattoo back when I actually experienced some of it in person. However, I'm always going to disagree with the line, a broken heart needs someone new to blame it on. I always thought a better line would be someone new to lay it on, as in someone new to confide in when all your barriers are down and you can be emotionally honest. Peace in our time will always rise like a tower to keep the album from fading into irrelevance, especially the prairie fire bridge section, which feels as epic as anything before or since. I always sort of forget it's there until it comes up like the eye of a hurricane. And no matter how jaded I get, River of Hope has just the right momentum to grab me and pull me along and smash me up against the rocks. It's a good warm-up for what comes later in Long Way Home in Kansas. Those three songs always make it worth waiting out the others, all of which could probably be swapped out with a non-album track from that era that would have made it a better album. But as I said, it's not like this one takes the place of another one. It's a stepping stone on the big country path. And it's a time capsule that will always be interesting to talk about. It takes a few lumps of coal to make you fully appreciate the diamonds. Well, let's talk about, just briefly, the REO sessions for a minute, because this is going to lead me into a, a mini rant of my own to Mr. Dave Bates, something that I read Ooh. this morning that really bothers me, really angers me, to be honest. Um, you know, we, we've all heard the, the REL tapes, and if you haven't out, out there, if you haven't heard the REL songs, what we're talking about are a, a group of demos that was recorded in 1987 at REL Studios. And most fans think that, the songs that appeared uh, on these demos are among the the best the band had done up to that point. In fact, um, many of us, myself included, uh, think that if they would have worked on many of those songs and released them, in fact, we've all got our own. We, we did a thing on our page recently where we came up with an alternate track listing of what Peace in Our Time should have been. And the one that I came up with had, I think, two songs that actually made it to the Peace in Our Time album. The rest came from the REL sessions. And they're from my perspective, and I know from a lot of you out there, there are just some incredible, emotional, huge, big songs that, to me, saw the band growing and and using soundscapes that they hadn't really used before, and yet still being completely true to what we all loved about Big Country. And um, one thing that I that I discovered was a, a quote that Tony Butler had on, on the song "Over the Border," which which might be my favorite song from the entire REL sessions. Um, and this kind of makes you sick a little bit when you read what he says about it and then what happened with, with what they ended up doing on the Peace in Our Time album. But he says, um, 
This song was originally a song I wrote and brought to the group. It was similar to the end result, but better due to the mandolin line and Stewart's lyrical idea. I was very keen for it to be a hybrid between the BC sound that we had established and Zeppelin, hence the dark heaviness. I am glad that you guys are responding favorably to this track, as it is one of my favorites and a direction I would have liked to explore. So when, when you think about that, you know, the, that being a direction he would have liked to explore, um, if, if you could have had someone behind that that would have been encouraging, that could have been incredible. And I think most of us agree that the band was, when they were, when they were writing those REL demos, I mean, they were, they were prolific. And like I said, it was among some of the highest quality stuff they were they had ever been writing. It's not my favourite album. It's got a few key tracks that I do like. I've got a few other tracks on it that are just, you know, I just thought, well, some of those songs that we wrote back at REL were <coughs> so much better, you know? Yeah. But we were um, we got signed to Reprise Records, Mo Austin and uh, Lenny Wonka, and we wanted to be good boys. <laughs> You know, we'd you know we'd always had sort of troubles with record companies in the past and stuff like that. So we thought, well, this is a new company. You know, let's be good boys. We'll just do everything they say. You know. So this brings me to my problem, uh, my latest problem with Dave Bates. This is another comment that he has in the Alan Glenn book, um, and that that book, by the way, is called Stuart Adamson in a Big Country by Alan Glenn, and a great book with a lot of great. Uh, interesting factoids about the entire period of the of the band's history but here's what dave bates says um he says i would say that peace in our time the album was not what it could have been or should have been and it's a shame i think it missed the target everything was wrong with it the songs the arrangements the production and this is coming from the guy who who spearheaded all this now keep this in mind to be on this is the part that really gives me to be honest creatively all was not well a lot of things were going off outside the main important thing, which is the writing. On this point, he refuses to elaborate. When pressed, this is all he was willing to say on record about what took place between the band and the label in the aftermath of Peace in Our Time. And he says, it's sad, but it isn't really enough to explain. It's the sort of thing where you like people, and I really liked all the guys. They all had their own particular great points. Each one of them were lovely human beings. And when you see them in the band and you work with the band, you always want that band to succeed. But there are times when you just, no matter what, you just can't turn things around or you can't make any difference or you can't change the course. Well, what what really pisses me off about that is that in those comments, he's he's intimating that the band was not writing good songs. He's saying that the band was having problems creatively, that they were that they were not putting the right songs together. What he's talking about is in his mind, what is a good song? And that would have been a radio friendly um piece of pap that would have been a big hit that's what that's what he's thinking of and to me like i like i said earlier this was a time when big country was at their at a creative zenith in my opinion i mean these songs that they had recorded for the rel sessions i think stand among their best ever and yeah. for him to come out and and talk about how you know none, and none of those songs really made the cut hardly any of those songs made the cut and for him to come out and look to, toward that period and the period that followed after and, and say that the writing was not good and the creativity was not good, oh, it just angers me so much. But that, that is the perfect example of why this was doomed to fail. I mean, he's trying to fit them 
in a box that there's no way they could be fit into. He's looking at them from the completely distorted viewpoint of the way a band like Big Country should be looked at. And it's it's just never going to work. And you can see it. And and even even in the present day, which which is when he gave those quotes, you know, probably just a few years ago, he still obviously thinks that everything, you know, was a failure because the band wasn't writing good songs. And I, I know from experience on a much, much smaller scale, and I've mentioned this before, um, a band that I was in, we, we were working with a producer and a, a guy who saw us and liked us and thought he could help us to get a you know, record deal or whatever. So he took us under his wing. He promised us all this stuff. He had his own home studio. At, at the time, it was a, you know, a big studio that he was actually making a living recording uh, stuff there. And um, he was going to, quote unquote, produce us. And it's, it's funny because I really went through the same things that I think Big Country went through, even though theirs was clearly on a huge scale and mine was on a tiny scale. But this guy, like he didn't like the guitar parts that we would come up with. He didn't like the lyrics. He didn't like the, the, the overall sound. He tried to use a drum machine for all of the songs because he thought that would be much easier to control. He basically took all of the passion out of the music that we were making and and I, I got into a point in my head where I would write songs and he would say, no, that's that's not good. That's You need something else. And I would start writing songs that I thought he wanted to hear. And I would start writing songs that in my head I knew weren't accurate reflections of what I wanted to do. And I knew something was not right with them. And I would play them for people and they would kind of give half-hearted responses to it. Like, oh, this isn't, uh, this is okay. But he would say, oh, this is good. This is what This is what I need. So... I could see how the band would have been um, poisoned in a way by that because it, it's easy to have that happen when you when you think someone is going to help you move to that next level and you sort of get hypnotized by that. Um, you can get to a point where you're not writing out of your own heart. You're not doing what you know is right. You're trying to please someone else. You're trying to write for some uh, idea that you don't really share. And that dilutes and Stuart used that word many times after the fact that dilutes everything that you're about so when yeah. I see Dave Bates say this stuff it's your fault Dave Bates that it was like this it's your fault that the songs were not what they should have been because you diluted everything you brought the band into this situation you took what was so beautiful and pure about them and tried to turn it into this commercial thing which is understandable you want to make money you want to sell records I, I know i get that but there's a limit to how much you want to you know warp a band and what they actually are and he took yeah. it to the point where he he went way overboard and it just angers me that he doesn't even see to this day that it's all down to him he's the one that did it and he messed up their career for years after because of that in my opinion so yeah anyway that's a, such a good point, and I think it's actually spot on for this whole album. I, I think that summarizes it so well. And you can look at the demo situation for this album and kind of start pointing at um, at certain songs. Like, for example, there is no demo for a song like King of Emotion. To me, that indicates that this was made in L.A., maybe overseen yes. to some degree by yes. Peter Wolf. And made exactly under the circumstance that you yourself said, maybe this is what the guy wants. Exactly. That, that's what that means to me. We have demos for five of the songs on this album. The other five we don't have demos for, which to me indicates they were made in L.A. 
I think that's a great point. And I was just thinking that yesterday. Like, I, I would love to hear a demo for King of Emotion. I'm, I'm curious what that would have sounded like, if it would have sounded any different. But I think you're right. I think he probably just just wrote it, you know, very quickly um, for to try to please uh, the powers that be. You, know, you want a hit? Okay. I'll, here, here's my attempt at giving you a hit. And um, so, a- anyway, it's, it's, yeah. a, it's a difficult time. To, to uh, think about what was lost in, as far as the song quality of the REL tunes and, uh, you know, what well, they ended the, up with. The good point today is that we, we do have the REL tapes, and especially after the the remaster for a couple of years ago, they were all very neatly collected on one disc. So uh, I don't know about you guys out there, but for me, when I opened the Peace in Our Time CD case, the REL disc, the second disc, is the one that shines against my uh, my face that that's the one i play the actual <laughs> right. album is buried in the number two spot and that never really comes out so so that that helps a lot for me and uh, it it has all those songs and the demos some of the demos but still uh, that's almost beside the point this is about the band having a shot and they blew it yeah yeah and and just if i could i just want to read one more quote from dave bates here um this is a little bit longer but i think this sort of uh, underscores what I was saying before and and I think paints the picture that with a with a guy like this who clearly doesn't get the band at all it's it was going to be impossible to make it work and he says um from the label and this this first line really says all you need to say but he says from the label's point of view Steeltown had been a real struggle and I mean a real struggle there was a lot of negativity and disappointment with that album not just in the UK but everywhere across the world just a huge negative and a huge disappointment. It was always going to take something huge to turn everything around and to really push the whole thing up. And if you look and analyze it in global terms, the Sears still really still really didn't kickstart it. It was a good indicator. It just never followed through, and it never developed from that point. And it went back to sort of fighting and struggling again. There are things you can do to cause an awareness. You can spend money. You can throw manpower at it, and you can achieve so much. But I don't write the damn songs, and I don't play them, or I don't sing them. And that's the point where it's out of my control. So again, he's kind of throwing the songs back into the band's face, and uh, you know, not, not even understanding his relationship to to diluting that. And I think people, even even the casual music listener who would like something like Jefferson Starship, um, I think even they can understand to some degree when when something just isn't quite uh, right, you know, or or isn't quite. Uh, honest and yeah i know there are people who don't care what band it is if they if it's a catchy song that they sticks in their head they're gonna like it maybe make it a hit but i think uh, that's that brings us back to the the fact that big country was never going to achieve pull in those casual casual listeners in a great uh, amount and the fact that they did an album that was so different from what their core fans wanted you know kind of lost them too so dave bates is responsible for both of those in my opinion but anyway, enough enough talking about Dave Bates. <laughs> Is it? <laughs> <laughs> At least for now. Yeah, for now. No, I think it's very interesting that uh, some bands are made for the grand stage. Others can still keep growing. And I think Big Country could keep growing uh, if they had been true to themselves. Because people sense some realness in music. People, I mean, you must give people credit. And uh, that, that this is the first album that was lacking that for me. Even though, you know, I have my my issues with parts of of the Seer. I think overall it's a great album, but uh, this is the album that fails on a wider 
level. And it's interesting that Dave Bates points to the songs and, and to the band, really. He does not seem to point to Peter Wolf. Mm-hmm. He, uh, he gives Peter Wolf a clean bill of health. Uh, he, he, he doesn't even mention him. It's the band and the songs. So uh, you got to wonder if something happened, if, if they sort of came off the wrong foot at some point and that was it, or if it was just a lack of success that grinded him into uh, sort of eventually dropping the band. Yeah, I, I think it was the latter, because he, lay, he says in that book too, he says that Big Country wasn't a band that he discovered. Um, they were there on the label when he came on board. He was asked to kind of come in and try to help their career. And he mm. basically gives the impression that even though he liked all the guys, he just wasn't really emotionally invested in them uh, as a band to begin with. And, um, yeah, you know, they, they kind of told him, hey, Steel Town didn't do well for us. We need some help. So we're going to bring in this guy who's had success on the charts and maybe he can help turn big country around. And, and uh, yeah, he just he, he didn't help in that respect. Maybe he shouldn't have tried to help. Uh, we've seen, I've seen so many stories of people being signed to bands. They have their champion. Then eventually that champion leaves and the band is kind of in dead water immediately because you need to have your champion right. on the label. Right. And if that champion is sort of a reluctant champion and someone who doesn't really want to help the band on their terms, it's like, sure, I can help you get a hit. Let's make you sound like any other hit out there. Maybe it would have been better if they had been dropped before then to go somewhere else and do the right thing. And maybe it's a case of one step back, two steps forward. Mm-hmm. So uh, this is this is getting into woulda, coulda, shoulda territory quickly. But um, well, the album is what it is, and we're here today to talk about the album. Hi, this is Warren Craghead calling from Charlottesville, Virginia. I'm about two hours south um, of Thomas here in the USA. Um, and I was lucky enough to see Thomas open for Big Country a few years ago in Leesburg, Virginia, um, which was a great show. Thomas, you were fantastic. It was a great night. Um, so I'm calling about peace in our time, and I just wanted to give my opinion about it, which is that it is a terrible album from start to finish. I had been a Big Country fan since The Crossing. When this album came out, I heard King of Emotion on the radio and thought, this, al- this song is awful. But there were awful songs on The Seer, like Hold the Heart. So maybe there's good songs on this album, like Look Away. So I bought the album. I saw the graphic was different on the front. It was this collage. I opened it up. There's a gatefold image of all of them looking like doofuses. And then I put the album on, and I really tried. I tried to listen to it, but I tried to love it. I listened to it over and over, but it was terrible. And I think it's the reason why I hate this album so much is because it shows what they left behind. In the early recordings... They had a twin guitar, new wave, post-punk power that wasn't blues-based. It was Celtic-based. It was an innovative. It was great music. They left that behind for this pop production of this stuff. The lyrics, too, in the early songs are both universal and epic, but also personal and individual. Close action, Thousand Stars, Harvest Home. Even songs on, on Steel Town are the same way. When you hear um, Where the Roses Sown, going in to come back to me, that's an incredible anti-war anthem that goes back and forth in different perspectives. I think that all that was lost in Peace in Our Time. It broke my heart, <laughs> and it made me so that I couldn't listen to New Big Country for the next 20 years. I'd hear The Crossing, I'd listen to The Crossing, I'd listen to Steel Town Weekly, but I couldn't listen to anything new. So hopefully... You guys will educate me in this podcast and your listeners well as well and teach me or show me where there's some value in this because right now I don't hear it. 
Anyway, thanks again, guys, and I look forward to hearing what everyone has to say. Bye. So are we getting ready to perhaps move towards the actual contents? I think we can do it, yes. Yes, let's do it. So the last word before we start should, uh, as always, go to to Stuart. He wrote some uh, revealing uh, liner notes for that album. So, Tom, I know you have them in front of you. Why don't you do the honors? I do. I have I have two comments about this, uh, one after the liner notes, and the, the second one is very short, but it's kind of funny. But anyway, the liner notes from The Peace in Our Time, the first remaster from 1996, great writing from Stuart and all of these. And here's what he says about Peace in Our Time. Much more than miles between Moscow and Los Angeles, snapshot L.A. space, space to play, space for big ideas, room for big cars, big homes, big people, California dreaming. I recognize this from movies. Anything you want on a stick, coming right up, sir. Thank you. I'll have a motorbike, a surfboard, lots of sun, and the weekend free. The lore of the West is very strong. Slow pan and fade to Moscow, 1988, Gorbachev, Perestroika, a new freedom, the same security force, endless concrete apartment blocks, suspicion, shortages, money changers, hard currency hypocrisy. All the cliches come alive. Nothing has prepared me for this. No connections. A brand new thrill. The air thick with the fear of change and the need for it. Living black and white. You know the words, but not what I'm saying. My gestures are alien, unrecognizable. I hope they're videoing this. What a glorious futility. The last war of attrition. Levi's and Coca-Cola versus Smokin' Joe Stalin. Winner to be decided by a cop-out. Brought to you by those friendly folks in lumpy suits. Well, at least it made the papers for a week. <laughs> what a great piece. My goodness. Oh, God. Yeah, I wish Stuart yeah. would have written more like that. I would have loved to have read his, anything that he would have written. But um, Yeah, just prose. Yeah, exactly. And so that, that, that's an interesting comment, commentary on com- comparing the whole experience recording at the album, I guess, in L.A. and then when they were playing in Moscow. But uh, I think you can glean a lot from the whole period from some of the lines he uses, especially the cop-out line and brought to you by those friendly folks in lumpy suits. Uh, one of which would have been Dave Bates probably, but <laughs> extremely lumpy suit. <laughs> now here, here's what could have been the liner notes for peace in our time. Uh, this was also written by Stuart Adamson. I'm not sure exactly when, but he says, I hate the peace in our time album. <laughs> <laughs> it is the black sheep of the family, the child that has chosen the wrong path. I love the songs on it, but it had nothing to do with big country. So that that comes from Alan Glenn's book as well, and, and there's no c- citation for that. But uh, so I don't know exactly where it came from. But um, <laughs> there, there you go. There's Stewart's feelings about it. He said a lot, but usually, you know, he doesn't mince words quite like that. Right. That's uh, that's uh, to say that he outright hates it. Uh, usually, a lot of the comments, if you look at especially Country Club, which would probably be a bit more toned down, is more like uh, the producer was a. Uh, that that was a mistake and it took the wrong direction there and sort of admitting that it wasn't what it should have been but to say i hate it okay no, i'm not sure even i would say that no i certainly wouldn't no uh, i certainly wouldn't but um, but, but he he was quick to say that he loves the song so i i, I think he must he probably just yeah. hates that whole period you know just knowing what it did to their career yeah he must have hated what he was forced to do exactly i think that's a lot to do with it yeah, I think he was taken advantage of in a way, and he and he was, you know, he was um, 
kind of molded into something that that he knew probably wasn't right, but he did it because he thought maybe these guys know more than me, and turned out they didn't. So that would leave yeah. anyone feeling bitter. During the recording, uh, did you have any thoughts about the direction? Did it feel right, or was it more realized at the end that, oops, this this, this isn't what we were hoping for? To be honest, we were... It's kind of a bit like the Rottles. We were too busy having a good time. We were, we were out in LA for three months, you know, and it was, <laughs> you know, and I'll, Peter didn't work the weekends, which um, the old cash, you know, it's like when you're in a studio, every penny's a prisoner, you know. So we had a lot of time on our hands at weekends, and we sort of tourists, yeah. you know, and doing the old, you know, going out and hanging out on the strip and doing that sort of rock and roll thing, yeah. We just kind of, like I said, we wanted to be good boys and we went with it and did everything the, the company yeah. said. Right. Um, <laughs> looking back, it was, you know, we, we, we could have stopped at any time, but we were kind of caught up in the whole LA thing where we were having fun. <laughs> yeah. It's like I said, uh, these guys, they were willing to give them a shot. They were willing to put money behind the band and, and make a, a decent stab at making the album that would break them. But uh, it didn't work. So the, the the big question is, if it had worked, would that then have been glorious? Because he would still be forced to make this music that probably wasn't an honest expression of what he wanted to do. Right. So uh, again, that's, uh, that's kind of conjecturing it all. Uh, again, the album is what it is. Right. Exactly. And last thing I'll say about it is, you know, look, look at... Jefferson Starship. Look at uh It's actually just Starship at this point. Okay. Yeah, you're right. I, I know it's confusing. <laughs> you're right. There's so many names. But look at look at them, look at the Commodores. I mean, were were did the hits that Peter Wolf had with them, were they successful? Yeah, they were successful at the time. But I think most people will say that Starship lost a huge amount of credibility after that. People don't really listen to the Commodores anymore. And when you think when you think about Starship, most people go back to Jefferson Airplane, the period where they were more respected and they were writing song, you know, better songs. So yeah. it's like, sure, Peter Wolf got them a hit, but at what cost? You know, at what cost to, to the whole way you view them? And I think Big Country, the amazing thing about them is that they were able to overcome this this huge punch that would have knocked out most people most bands, most artists, and it took them a while, but they recovered and they continued and they're still going now. So, you know, that, that says a lot about them, but, uh, mm. it, it was a tough body blow, this, this album and its success or lack thereof. But, uh, hi, Tom and Swine. This is Felicity Cooper from Melbourne, Australia, here with some thoughts on peace in our time. I'd been a casual big country fan for about 20 years, collecting some records and listening to songs from all the albums here and there, but never whole albums at a time. The one album I did own on CD was Peace in Our Time, and I loved it. I used to clean the house to it and play it all the time. In this place, 13 Valleys and Thousand Yards Dare being standouts for me. When the band announced their Australian tour back in February, I decided it was time to get serious and to learn more about all of the albums. This has been an amazing process and naturally I have discovered some fantastic songs and albums. And if I had heard them before Peace in Our Time, I possibly may have changed my opinion on this album. Only two months ago did I first listen to the REL tapes. 
Wow, there are some amazing songs and demos on there. You Lose Your Dreams, Promised Land and the Peace Now Time demo are all fantastic. And while I can see what the addition to a couple of these songs may have done for this album, I still love it. It will always be my favourite Big Country album because it was my first. Thank you for the podcast. It helped me a lot in these months uh, trying to learn all this Big Country stuff. Uh, So thanks again. Bye. Anyway, so let's talk about it. Let's uh, let's begin with the beginning. I guess the best way to start with this song is to sort of retell a story that I've told briefly before on the show, and I'll, I'll try to be brief on this one too. But and that is the story of when I first heard this song and what it what it what kind of effect it had on me the first time I heard it. Um, I was just starting college, and I was uh, at a university, and there was a student union that they had at this university, and a good friend of mine and the girl that I was seeing at the time, we would often go to the student union, and they had a, they had video games, they had pool tables, they had a bowling alley, and we would often go there between classes and bowl and and just you know chill out, and they they would play the radio really loud. It was fun, and um, we would eat and bowl and whatever. So I remember one day we were doing this, and at the time I I was. Huge into big country, obviously. The Seer was the last thing I'd heard. And we got to go back to the idea that there was no internet at this time. And we looked to magazines and things like that to find out what our bands were up to and when a new album was coming out. Well, big country wasn't getting a lot of press in America at the time, even after the relative success of The Seer. So I didn't know what they were doing. I didn't, I was hoping something new would be coming soon, but they were kind of on the, on the back burner in my head because I just wasn't hearing anything. So I remember bowling. And suddenly the song popped up with drums that sounded like the beginning to Honky Tonk Woman. And I was kind of half listening to it, half talking to my friends, and half bowling. Well, I guess there are three halves there, so that doesn't work out, but you know what I mean. Um, And as the song kept playing, I remember thinking to myself, oh, what a a piece of crap this song is. And I was kind of in the middle of, in the beginning stages, actually, of forming my own band at the time. So I was kind of full of what we wanted to do and we wanted to be this and that. So I was very much anti what we would call MOR music, middle of the road music, the the music that I thought was, was just not good or music that was not passionate or whatever. The, the radio friendly stuff. And this song that I was hearing struck me as just the kind of song that I did not want to to perform in my own band or just this kind of song that I wanted my band to stand against <laughs> and I had no idea it was big country and I never would have known it was big country I mean it didn't sound anything like the band when it when it started obviously um 
but the vocals especially, and we'll talk about this more, I'm sure, through this album, nothing like Stuart Adamson. I would never have believed that that was Stuart Adamson if you had told me it was Stuart Adamson. So I remember remarking to my friend, um, I said, listen to this, listen to this song. This is exactly what's wrong with music today. You know, this na-na-na, <laughs> DDD stuff. I mean, ugh, it's terrible. And so, again, you know, I've come to like certain aspects of King of Emotion, as I'll talk about in a minute, certain aspects of it. But when I'm just hearing it with with no preconceptions whatsoever, not knowing it's big country, um, this was my honest reaction. And I remember as we were, as I think just a couple minutes later, we started to leave or something. But but the guy came on the radio and he said that was a new song by Big Country. And suddenly I was just shocked. It was like a, a bolt of lightning hit me. I, I felt like I'd been caught cheating on my wife or something. You know, I was like, <laughs> I was so um, taken aback because Big Country was my band. I was loyal to Big Country. You know, this Big Country was my huge inspiration. And suddenly I'm confronted with these comments that I just made about a song by Big Country. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is Big Country. And I, on the one hand, I was really excited because. I finally knew that Big Country was doing something new, and I assumed a new album would be out. But on the other hand, I was a little concerned <laughs> because I just <laughs> I I didn't understand that. But I went through the I went through the thing that I've seen a lot of people say on the page. It's like forcing yourself to like it. So it's funny how I immediately started to think, okay, maybe it wasn't as bad as I think it was. <laughs> I I need to hear it again. Maybe I was only partially listening to it. So I remember my friend and I, we used to go to this record store to get new new albums when they were released, and it was about a mile walk from the campus. And we shortly after that, we walked up to this store, and there was Peace in Our Time, the album. Um, I actually bought it on cassette. And I remember we bought it on cassette because my friend was a huge big country fan as well at the time. But he was kind of one of those guys who, if a band got too big, he would immediately turn on them. Um, he was already kind of turning on U2. He had been a big fan of theirs, and he was just like too – he was one of those guys who was way too cool to like anything that was popular. So he was still kind of wondering about big country, but this was going to put him over the top. I remember walking home, uh, walking back to the dorms, and we opened up the cassette, and as soon as we pulled it out and saw that big picture – of the band there with, um, you know, Stewart's big smile on his face, uh, Tony's dreadlocks with a T-shirt of himself on it, Mark Brzezicki's mullet, uh, and of course Bruce Watson's metal hair. I remember my friend just burst out laughing. Uh, that was his immediate reaction. He just started laughing so hard, and I was like, "Oh no! You know <laughs> what is going on? What is happening? What world is this?" and we took it back to my dorm, and we started listening to the album. We listened to the whole thing, and I'll go back to this experience as we talk about each song. But I remember listening to King of Emotion again. It was the second time I heard it. And um, while my feelings were a little bit better, I guess, knowing that it was big country and a little more willing to give them a benefit of the doubt, I just remember still being really disappointed by the song and just like, Surely the rest of the album can't be like this. Oh, what is going on here? Um, so as I talk about all these songs, th there are kind of two ways that I look at this album and look at the songs on them and on it. 
and that is one the way I felt when it first came out, and how the the album delivered on my expectations for a new big country album or did not deliver. And the other way I look at it is with the with the benefit of time, you know, with with the benefit of thirty years and being able to look back on the entire big country catalog and take it as a whole and see how they developed, they changed. And from that perspective, I really appreciate Peace in Our Time a lot more. But, yeah, when I when I heard it for the first time, <laughs> yeah, that perspective was not there. 30 uh, years of willing yourself to like it helps. I know. I, I, you know, I never could really do that for, uh, for King of Emotion. And I did find a quote from Stuart about the song. And it, it's very short, but it, it's... It says exactly, it explains exactly why I don't really like the song. He says, I grew up playing a lot of R&B music, and I wanted to do a very R&B type song. And I like the na-na-nas. I always wanted a song with those in. And I'm like, why? Why? I mean, if you remember the classic rock article that came out not too long ago, and, and Bruce is talking about the early days of the band, and he says... Basically, R&B and blues is something that they wanted to stay as far away from as possible. So much so to the point that they didn't even want to bend guitar strings. And, <laughs> and that is what I loved about the band. And we get back to the whole thing of, well, you don't want to let them grow and you don't want to let them change and experiment. Well, I mean, guilty as charged to some degree. But I, w I would argue that with what I said earlier about the REL sessions. I think that's the sound of a band changing, experimenting, doing different things, but still being very true to the spirit of big country that, that drew us all in. And as we've talked about at length already, we can see from the external forces that were shaping the way this album was being created. It wasn't like this was an honest expression of the band's writing style or an honest expression of them honestly wanting to change and experiment and grow I mean, yeah. th this was a band that was forced into a corner and they were trying to work their way out of it. And, you know, uh, what I want to say, too, going forward is that even though we've been very strong against the, the production and the approach and all that, there are still there are still plenty of moments on this album for me where I feel that big country spirit, that big country feeling. It, it, it fights to come out at times, despite all the things that are. Uh, piling on top of it and even in this song i think there are some moments um that i'll talk about but i mean th there are still the, the it's not completely browbeaten into submission is what i'm saying it's it's still there it tries to come out in these songs it's often pushed back but it's still there and it tries to come through but the the dilution which i i think is the word that of the day here of the material is obvious and and this song is just not what I wanted from big country. I know it's not what a lot of you guys wanted from big country when it came out. I wanted, um, you know, I wanted that rocking anthemic sound and it was going to take a while on this album to get to that. But this is probably the worst offender as far as a song that's being so far removed from what we wanted. And again, Stuart says it R and B. I, I never wanted R and B in big country. Never. I, I never was a big fan of that anyway, that form of music. But I can appreciate it when a band that's meant to do it does it. But I don't think Big Country was ever meant to do R&B music. It just doesn't work. And I, I, we saw some of that, too, on uh, the No Place Like Home album for me when they took some forays into that. It just it just didn't ring true for me. And this especially. And I, I, think, I think the biggest issue with that on this song is 
you know, the, the backup singing that you get, which is really very, very good. And the woman who sings on the song, whose name I don't know offhand. Um, Mary Clayton. Mary Clayton, thank you. And she's, she's uh, didn't she sing on, on some other, uh, didn't she sing on that Stone song or something? Yeah, she, she sings on the Give Me Shelter, which is a very classic part. Uh, yes. I love it. Love that one. Exactly. That's right. Thank you. I knew it was something like that. And like I said, she's great. She's she sounds great in this. Her voice is fantastic, but it's just again, it's it's not what I want with big country. Leave it for the Stones, that kind of thing. Um, to me, it didn't work uh, as far as a stylistic approach. But I will say that there is something about this song that I do like, and a couple little moments. I I really think the verses of this song are actually really interesting in retrospect. It, it was hard for me to get into them at first because they're kind of um, they're, they have an odd chord progression to them. It's almost a little jazzy, maybe, which, again, also something that I wouldn't associate with big country. But there, there's there's a quality of the verses here, even even lyrically. There's some beautiful lines, but musically speaking, it's a very interesting chord progression in these verses that you got to listen to maybe a few times before you really understand what's happening. It's kind of kind of advanced, really, almost way too advanced for the chorus that that follows which is like a very standard cliched um chord progression or the, the radio friendly chord progression but i really like these verses a lot in, in retrospect um i don't like the production of them and when especially when the keyboards come in in the very beginning i mean that was another huge alarm bell when you've got you got the drums coming in and then you're like okay let's see where this goes and then the keyboard right before the the singing starts the keyboards come in with that Burr, 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 burr. This little descending line that is just like, oh, <laughs> I just hate that keyboard sound. And um, you know that was Peter Wolf putting his putting his mark on it immediately, making his mark, marking his territory, as you will. But. Um, there's still some beautiful lines, beautiful writing in this song and in the lyrics. I know where all that time has gone, blown and drifted, listening to an August night. I mean, that's, that's a beautiful line. I see where I was wrong, but how could I know that you were right when you said I would need something wild, something crazy to carry me. And then this line that I think is classic Stuart Adamson, I would see you naked and weary, but with pride in your eyes that put shame in me. I love that line. That's a great line. And that kind of gets back to the pride that grows in hardship. Um, motif that that 
weaves throughout all of his or a lot of his music up to this point, especially. Um, but then you get to the to the the chorus, which is the part that really never did it for me, and that because it's just it's just a kind of a cliched hard rock standard chorus that I've heard a million times before. Um, lyrically, though, I I do think it's more interesting. I, I like the title of the song. I think King of Emotion is a cool title. Um, I like the fact that he's putting that, that uh, phrase for love. Love is the king of emotion. I think that's that's a cool uh, way to approach it. I never heard the song title with the... I've never heard that song title before. And as I said in the past, I've often looked at song titles to give me a sense of how I'm going to feel about a song. If I, see a, if I see a song title like, for example, Broken Heart, which we'll talk about, um, that title, I'm sure, but I see that and I think, oh, I've heard that a million times. That's very cliched. But I see King of Emotion. I'm like, well, that's an interesting song title. I've never heard that before. This could be interesting. So I really I really like the lyrics to this song. I mean, when I when I go back and look at them and read the lyrics, um, they're very moving and touching in a lot of ways. And unfortunately, the presentation of the song for me just doesn't really match the the passion of those lyrics. And um I don't know if I don't know if it ever could to some degree with the, with the structure of that chorus, but it, over the years I've really come to appreciate the verses and I'm wondering if they could have maybe taken the chorus in a different way or or done something different with it that wasn't so predictable, that wasn't so cliched and typical. Maybe the song could have really been lifted to a way that uh, to a place that you know it should have been all along, or it could have actually been a really good song. Um, so th- this is like a battle of two songs for me: the the verses, which I really like, the chorus, which I find kind of cheesy, and then the na na nas. That was the other alarm bell when I heard this, and I, I hate to be such a you know stickler for this kind of thing. It, it, I guess it says a lot about you know, my own musical taste, and maybe there's a musical snobbery in there. It's not like there's anything inherently wrong with saying na 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 in a song or I've heard plenty of songs where I where I've heard that kind of thing and like it. But again, with big country it just feels it just feels forced. It just in the song. It just feels like this is what uh we need to get a hit. Na 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 ni ni ni. Let's put that in there someplace. <laughs> and it it fits the song logically, but it doesn't fit the song passionately and from the heart to me. I, and that that always just just kind of detracted from the song quite a bit for me. Um, musically, it's it's got some good bass playing from Tony. Um, the guitars are pretty simplistic for Big Country in a lot of respects, but it does have, you know, like I said, there are some moments that creep in, and one would be a really beautiful little Ebo line that comes through, and then it, there's kind of a battle here too between the old Big Country and the the new big country when you come to the solo, because when you come to the solo, you've got a very typical R and B blues bass type solo at first. And then the very last line of the solo goes to a completely typical Stuart Adamson, beautiful Celtic line um, that he plays. And it's like both of them are back to back. And it's interesting. It's almost like the first solo was like Dave Bates saying, here's what you should be. And then the the second line of the solo is Stuart subconsciously maybe trying to reclaim a little bit of what is pure about his songwriting. I don't know. Uh 
I don't hate this song by any stretch of the imagination. I, I really don't like the the production of this. Um, I think it's one of the, the worst offenders when I talk about the Peter Wolf production. And by the way, I think there are some good things that Peter Wolf did on this album, both from a production standpoint and especially from an arranging standpoint. And there's no way to tell on this song because, as you said, we don't have a demo of it, um, which I would just love to hear. I, I thought I remember once hearing that there was a demo of this written and recorded uh, that was never released or something. I think I remember a band member, maybe Bruce, mentioning it. I would be curious to hear it, but I, I, would, I wouldn't assume it would be much different. But um, yeah, there there are some good things about Peter Wolf's production, in my opinion, on this album that make it interesting to listen to. Um, I do like the space on the album, which is even more, uh, kind of more of a carryover from the Seer. Um, I like the cleanness of a lot of the guitars in some of these songs, as we'll, we'll hear. There's, that was kind of new for Big Country, but still had a Big Country flavor to it. Uh, I do think the drums sound great. I think the vocals sound great, but the intonation doesn't sound anything like Stewart. And no, it doesn't. It just doesn't at all. And and you cannot convince me that this wasn't intentional. I know we've, I know that it's been talked about that it was just a natural evolution of his voice. But no, I have quotes on that. I'll get into it. Okay, good. I, I can't see that because the, the change is just so great and so surprising from what we've been used to. It, it, it couldn't have changed that drastically naturally in just a couple years. So. Yeah, I haven't really dissected this song as like we often do, but um, as as far as what I think the meaning of it is, um, I don't I don't know exactly. It's it's just kind of one of those abstract songs that Stuart writes, and again, it gets back to the whole. He mentions pride a lot, and in, in one of the verses, he kind of turns it around from the first one. But he's when he says. She sees him naked and weary, but with pride in his eyes that would put shame in you. So it's kind of like, um, you know, the typical thing with Stuart writing, being down, being, being, uh, going through some issues, some difficulty, some problem, but searching for the way out. And in this case, it's taking hold of the king of emotion, love, and getting your way, getting out of this pit that you find yourself in, self in with this person. And, um, yeah, I like the I like the line "King of Emotion, take a walk with me." I think that's a great line too. So, for <laughs> for me, this is like uh, there are good elements of this song from a writing standpoint in some in some areas, but the production, the presentation, the it was just jarring at the time, and I was never able to recover from that. And this to me is is one of the biggest offenders of on the album of a song that just shows the struggle here between big country trying to be themselves very in a very little in this song. And then the influences that they're getting from, from uh, other, other sources that really don't understand the band. Mm. So I've mellowed on this over the years, but uh, it's still very low on my list, especially on this album. Yeah. That, that was a good attempt. That's trying to, to put it in some positive light. Uh, <laughs> I, I, uh, I'm probably a bit more downtrodden on it. It's uh, for me. I just I my big challenge is just finding any kind of enthusiasm for the song whatsoever. It's not like I hate it. I'm just so indifferent to it, and that is almost worse when you talk about a band like Big Country. Uh, but uh, to start at the beginning, where does a song like King of Emotion come from? Because it's not a very typical big country song. They didn't write much like this after, and they certainly didn't write write like this before. I mean, it doesn't come from 
the traditional Scottish thing. It has nothing to do with the punk music the boys grew up loving and the need playing. And it's nothing to do with the progressive background of Mark and Tony. So uh, this is a middle-of-the-road led-back rock song of the type you hear on the radio. Inoffensive music for inoffensive minds. Or some would call it good, clean fun, except it's not much fun here. There are some flourishes, and you touched on some of them, uh, some touches here that remind you of big country, like the use of Ebo in the middle there, but it's honestly minimal. You can't really point to that and say, that's great. You know, the, yeah, five seconds of great. It's... <laughs> <laughs> it's almost like they forced it in there. But uh, of course, you, 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 you can't help but look for that and almost cherish that there's glimpses of, of the big country that was, but it almost feels more like a taunt to me. It's, uh, I can't see it as a, ah, I can't go, ah. It's, it's more like, damn you, you're giving me a glimpse and then snapping it away. <laughs> That's right. That's how I felt when I listened to it. Yeah, I can't help but, but feel that way, really. But um you can divide a song on this album really into two batches. You have those that were picked from the Ariel tapes and those that weren't. And King of Emotion does not come from the Ariel tapes. And frankly, it sounds nothing like them. And we talked about the fact that we were missing a demo points to it being written in L.A. And that makes total sense for me because when you're out there, as Dave Bates said, you're, you're sort of encapsulated in that environment, perhaps listening to radio. Uh, I think it's easier for the band to come up with a song like this while there whether that's the case or not i don't know but it it, it sort of fits in my mind yeah so um going back to the inspirations for this song i think uh, there are two very clear inspirations and the, the blatantly obvious is honky tonk woman by the rolling stones and uh, big country even played honky tonk woman live during the seer tour and that live version ended up on a b-side unfortunately not their best cover in my opinion Mm-mm. but but that's that song is just one of those that's very hard to get right because the tempo is slow. The song in itself is very basic and you need kind of to have that X factor and almost the feeling that the song could fall together at any time and almost played by solid but non-technical players like the Stones. Then it kind of works. But even that is flighty. Even when the Stones play that song today, it's boring because they mastered it. They sped it up. They have singing ladies now. And it's almost like a rock ensemble with them on stage. They just know the song too well. And in the case of Big Country, they're just too technically good to make that song work. It needs to be a bit more ramshackle. They just need to have something that the early Stones approach has and the drawl that it's originally sung in. All of that makes that song work. But in any case, a lot of that song went into King of Emotion. And uh, I have a quote from Stewart from the Making Music magazine, October 1988, where he says, uh, we had actually done Honky Tonk Woman a few times live, and definitely there was a group there that suited us. So I thought, why not go the whole hog and write our own version? But I wanted to combine it with non-standard R&B lyric that were moody and evocative. You have to be able to incorporate different styles. I'm very pleased with it. Hmm, interesting. Gin's all borrowed, Queen Elizabeth. 
so that's it. Um, the Honky Tonk Woman connection is very clear. Everybody hears it. Uh, however, there is another song lurking in the background, which is uh, a bit less discussed than Honky Tonk Woman and, and that connection. Uh, and I didn't find the quote ahead of this uh, deep dive, but Stuart talked in an interview around this time about a song called Stainsby Girls by Chris Ree. And if you listen to the chorus of that song, I think it shows that he listened a lot to that song, plus just the overall vibe of that song. It, it really sounds like Stuart liked a lot of the aspects of that song and just grabbed them. Uh, personally, I'm no big fan of Chris Ree, and even that statement is understating it a bit. But uh, it's definitely a song that should be mentioned if we talk about King of Emotion. So hmm. here it is. We'll play a little section of it now. You can make up your own mind about that one. Cool. I've never even heard of him before. Stuart mentioned in the quote I read earlier that he wanted to add some non-standard R&B lyrics to the song that were moody and evocative. These words are interesting on some overall level, even if this is as close as Stuart probably came in the 80s to writing an I love you baby kind of lyric. But he does it in his own way. And we must keep in mind he was probably trying to hold back on the most abstract lyric writing as the words had to fit the music it had to fit the, the end goal of being played on radio. It had to work on a wider level. So he simplified. And I'm not surprised that it is basically a love song or relationship song. Uh, I, I, think, um, I don't think he went too far in simplifying. I think he managed to get a good balance because, like you said, I see a lot of Stuartisms in the song. And uh, at the same time, it, it's basic enough. It's not quite as abstract as maps on the back of your hand meeting the scouts in the stairwell. Uh, but the words are, as I take them, about two people who are no longer together. Uh, the song talks about how a lot of time has gone by. It refers back to things that have happened. Things that were said in the past, things that they had in common that are, quote, worn and faded. They like cast away. Uh, but it's not a relationship that's necessarily dead. They're no longer together, but they're kind of looking at each other. And uh, he does this clever thing that he always does, like he will turn things around within the song. So early in the song, it is with pride in your eyes that put shame in me. And later in the song, it's pride in my eyes that put shame in you. So he does turn it around and it seems to work on both levels, that they're both kind of looking at each other from across the room, if you will, and uh, hinting at what could be there. So it's an interesting uh, song from that respect. He still wants to experience that deep love. And the focal point seems to be that he still has that yearning for it. And it's not clear for me whether he's hoping to find it with the same person 
or that person is still in the picture, but it's now ready to move on. But th- that doesn't matter. I think it's a nice song from that perspective. It's, it's never going to be my favorite lyrics as far as the topic or how that interests me, but I like some of the phrasing and some of the sort of passages within the, the words. And that's probably as positive as I can be about the song because let's move on to the music. There are several things not worth noting about the music. And uh, we talked about Stuart's way of singing. That that really changed with this album. And this has always been a big talking point amongst fans and even amongst us in previous episodes. Why does he sound so different on Peace in Our Time? And this subject is brought up by uh, Making Music magazine in that same article I've been quoting from October 88. And uh, that article says the following. The quality of Stuart's singing seems to have changed for the better on this LP. Stuart says... Peter made me come in close to the microphone. With Steve Lillywhite and with Robin Miller, I was encouraged to stand back and sing out loud and powerfully. Now, in close, it's letting all the inflections come out. Unquote, Stuart. Uh, That is obviously part of the change, but there is a lot of inflections to the point where it sounds like Stuart is very self-conscious about them. End quote, article. So that's an interesting thing. Very interesting. The thing about me, when I first, going back to when I first heard this album, listened to all these songs, and it um, it is very clear he's singing up close, but the inflection is what gets me. It's almost like he's trying to sing to someone who doesn't have English as his first language, and just being very clear about every word. It's yeah. uh, <laughs> that's uh, that's the thing I noticed, and I said, why is he doing that? It's uh, is he trying to sing to the Russians who don't know English so well? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> It's, he is super clear in his delivery, and that's really noteworthy. And that could come from the producer. I mean, I know they worked a lot on uh, on the voice and on singing together, and I know that uh, Peter Wolf wanted him to sing like uh, the Starship lead vocalist, the male one, whose name escapes me. Not worth mentioning. I don't even know. <laughs> that, that that was the, uh, the end goal, to sing just like that guy. And... Uh, so the inflection and the coming in closer and singing more into the mic and being very clear is is evidently part of that. Yeah, and I, and I think that's good, actually. That's one of the things that I like about um, the production. Uh, like I said, I, I think his vocals on this album sound great. It's 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 the inflection, it's the almost Americanized accent that, that bothers me. you got to wonder if uh, when the producer hears him talk in a Scottish accent he perhaps goes too far in ensuring that he is very clear to understand. Mm-hmm. Because uh, Stuart always sang in a typical English accent, and uh, it wasn't hard to understand him while singing. Some people might have a problem between songs in the banter and stuff, but uh, that could be one thing that you just overemphasize the fact that he needs to be clear. He can't sound like he's from Scotland, especially if you're going to translate to America. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of that song by the Proclaimers. I don't know if you've ever heard that, but it's flatten all the vowels and throw the R away. (laughs) And that's about their trouble singing uh, and someone telling them they need to not sound so Scottish. So I don't know if that happened here, but uh, yeah, who knows? Uh, I think it's very clear that happened here, but uh, I mean, Stuart kept some uh, aspects of this. I, I think he, he kept leaning in close. He, he didn't lean back screaming anymore. But um, perhaps the the overemphasis on uh, inflation was a bit toned down on subsequent albums. Maybe it had uh, done the trick, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. So, um, okay, where does that leave me? Uh, the song build-up is uh, 
like you said, interesting. Uh, I think the tempo is uh, it's a slow song, and uh, Bruce said they they do play it quicker live. Uh, I don't think that helps uh, Mark. I think Mark is bored out of his wits when they play this song, and he said as much on our show. King of emotion, I don't like. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like the drum part. I don't like the ploddiness of it. Uh, I not particularly like my drums. I think Peace Now Time is far more of a modern, contemporary sounding, what you would hear more so now in the drum sound. Uh, although it sounds a bit Americanized, it, it varies so much, you know. But uh, we mentioned the Ebo, which is nice. And I also want to mention the guitar solo. It's just, just by fact that it's got to be one of the least interesting guitar solos I've ever heard on a big country song. It's really just standard bending of notes. As a guitar player, do you do you find yourself uh, smitten with 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 this one? No, I, like I say, the the first part of it where it sounds very bluesy, I just kind of tune out. But I do like the second half of it. I think it's a a very pretty typical uh, big country melody line that he plays there. Um, it's very short. It's probably one of the shortest guitar solos, too, that they've ever done. It is. And it goes back to kind of what you were saying about getting glimpses. And I remember when, when I was sitting in that dorm room listening to this for the first time, when I heard that you know, more clearly, I thought, there it is. There's big country. There's big country. Oh, it's gone. It's gone again. <laughs> <laughs> now you see it. Now you don't. Uh, I read that Stuart played that guitar solo on his 1982 Gibson Les Paul standard reissue on the bass pickup, which gives it a very uh, sort of rough sound on that, uh, that blue sea sound. Yes. Yes. I've tried to emulate that over the years. Um, yeah. When you, when you turn the guitar, like the little toggle switch, you flip it backward to the, the bass pickups. It, it's, it gives a really nice fat feel to a lead sound. And I always love yeah. that about his playing. He did that a lot. I think. <laughs> the, the the thing is the rest of the song sounds so polished and then there are those few bars where they kind of claw back a bit sound a little dirty i mean dirty in the context of this album which probably isn't that dirty but right it's still it's still in that slow tempo and within the confines of the song so it doesn't take off not that i not that i think they were trying to that's probably just me wishing uh, so uh yeah the singing ladies <laughs> yeah, yeah the lovely assumedly beautiful sweet charming and talented singing ladies and now uh, Mary Clayton is uh, a well-credentialed <laughs> singing lady, if you will say so. Uh, and she sings on this song with Maxine Anderson and Donna Davidson. They also got some different singing ladies to go out with them on tour. The problem with singing ladies in general, if you bring singing ladies with you out on tour, they eventually start being used on a lot of songs that didn't feature singing ladies to begin with. Yeah, right. Um, and in fairness, though, Big Country was never overtaken by the singing ladies, like some other bands where Simple Minds comes to mind, who changed a lot of their songs to accommodate their singing ladies. For Big Country, it seemed more like an experiment, like of a dip, dip in their toes into the singing ladies' pond. Yeah. Uh, and that lasted a couple albums, uh, although they did send them off with a mighty have at you in the end. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, um, I don't know what to say about the singing ladies. I think... One of uh, my laws, let's call that Jurtaug's law number one. If big country are doing a song like singing ladies, they are probably doing a song that they shouldn't do. <laughs> that's, I think that's uh, a good law, yeah. I think that's all I can say about that. But they were better on the album than they were live, which probably also don't say much, but uh, let's give them 
their due. I can't really fault the effort of the singing ladies, but it just sounds so wrong. It's it's part of changing the sound to something that isn't big country yeah, to me. Exactly. That's how I felt. It's like their performance was great, you know. If you put that performance on a on a with a band that you would expect to hear that kind of music from, you, you would probably think more of it. Yeah. No, that, that's true. Now, so uh, I, I think um, to take a step back a bit, um, in previous episodes a while back, I, I actually went on record saying that this is a bad song. And I just want to clarify that a bit because it's, uh, it's not a good song. I don't know if bad song is, is the right word, but what I'm about to say is probably in many ways worse. Because uh, like yourself, you heard this song, you didn't know what it was. And if anything, you you didn't think much about it or it symbolized a lot of things that were wrong. Uh, I think for me, I would have just felt incredibly indifferent to it. And a lot of the songs on this album is just that. It's a big bucket of indifferent. Mm -hmm. Uh, I wouldn't even have thought of the song in terms of good and bad. The, The song itself is average. I guess it's okay in some respects. But listening to this song primarily fills me with indifference. And and that's what kills me, because this is big country. This is one of the most passionate bands out there. Uh, this is the band that writes beautiful melodies with lyrics that are just inspired with a musicianship that's out of this world. And you should never feel indifferent when you listen to a big country song. You know something is terribly wrong if you do. And it kills me that a band of big country's talent made a song that makes me feel as indifferent as this song makes me feel. Hmm. So uh, so just to paraphrase myself, it's not a bad song in that way. The song is okay, but it's nothing special. I feel totally and utterly indifferent to it. And I, I think I do hold Big Country to a higher standard. They are the band that is supposed to make me feel something. And with this song, they failed to meet that standard. So that's where the bad expression comes from. By big country's own standards, yes, it's it's probably a bad song. But it's probably best to say this is a lesser song in the context of big country's overall catalog. So so that's that's really the best way I can put down how I feel about King of Emotion. Uh, the, the emotion is sadly indifference. It's not love <laughs> for me. <laughs> and, and I'll tell a little story that may amuse some of you guys out there. Because uh, as I mentioned, I, I did use the word bad before in my description of this song and bruce watson heard his comment about king of emotion being a bad song so so he's aware of my opinion that's one thing but he even sent back a funny note saying i look forward to when swine writes a better song than king of emotion lol (laughs) 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 i thought that was funny and and that's and that's fair you know what have i done except bitch and moan but uh i think a lot of people could probably have written a better song and King of Emotion, but that's that's kind of my point, is Big Country had already done that. They had a lot of better songs. Uh, let's not forget they had songs like Over the Border, Promised Land, Made in Heaven, You Lose Your Dreams, and many, many more. I could never write better songs than those songs. I don't think a lot of people could. So they did have better songs than King of Emotion. Clearly they did. They just weren't used. Yeah. Uh, and I felt, I felt that... It was felt they needed a song like King of Emotion to do the work they expected of a single and an album. So so that's what they came up with. And I guess the best compliment I can give to the song, or I guess it really is the band, is that I do not feel indifferent about how indifferent I feel about the song, if that makes sense. I really want to like it. 
I want it to be a better song, and it just frustrates me that it isn't. So, so that's a good word also for the whole situation. The, the song frustrates me. The fact that it was picked over superior songs, the fact that they felt they had to move away from the signature sound, the fact that a producer who didn't know the band got free reign and that the album he wanted to make wasn't a big country album. There are so many red flags and they were all ignored. And maybe they didn't have a choice. I don't want to judge. I don't want to criticize. And this is hindsight. Uh, I know they did the best they could. But they did give us a product that does not rate highly, at least in, in my own big country chronology. And it has, it has the reputation it has widely too. I know some people do like it. But I also know a lot of people feel like I do. And the only thing to add to that is at the end of the day, we're still big country fans. We survived Peace in Our Time and we survived King of Emotion. And the band did have a lot of gunpowder left in their arsenal that uh, that would follow in, in coming years. This wasn't the end. It was a dip. And everybody can have a dip. You know, sure. Lord, Lord behold, <laughs> bless them. Of course, they can have a dip. So uh, I think the last thing I'll say about this song uh, it, it's more an observation I've made, and we talked about this before we started recording. Uh, this is not necessarily very recent. It's a, a year or, or two ago, maybe even. But it stuck with me, and I'm kind of puzzled about it. So so this was something I saw on Facebook in one of the other big country groups. Uh, and there was a discussion about this album and about King of Emotion in particular. And uh, someone was saying something negative about it. And people jumped on and said, oh, oh, but this is one of my favorite songs. And some say, yes, this is my favorite big country song. I love King of Emotion. And uh, <laughs> music is obviously subjective, as it should be, which is why I, I, I would never argue that point with those people. Everybody has, you know, likes different things. That, that's fantastic. But this, this one did r- raise some questions with me, because when people say this is my favorite big country song of all time, I, I get really curious about what big country is to those people. Uh, this is not a typical big country song. This is very middle of the road, average in terms of the, the, the middle point of everything that is rock, if you will. If you're a fan of a band like Big Country, but the song you like best of all their songs is the lowest common denominator, the one that sounds like all the other bands out there, what does that say about how you like their more pure and original sound, the, the big country musical trademarks? Because King of Emotion has none of those trademarks in it, none of the usual lyrical themes. Do you really like that better than Fields of Fire, Flame of the West, Through the Roses Own, The Sailor, Eileen, Remembrance Day? I mean, if King of Emotion eclipses all of that and rises to the top as your absolute big country favorite, are you really a fan of the big country sound? And again, it's it's primarily fascinating to me. I mean, I, I just want to try and understand where that is coming <laughs> from. It's, it's more fascinating. I'm not criticizing whatsoever if this is your favorite song. No, but, I get but it. That, 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 that's a fascinating point. Well, we should ask um, we should ask the writer of the of an NME uh, review of King of Emotion uh, to elaborate <laughs> on that. I, I meant to read this earlier, but this th- this was the wonderful NME's um, review of King of Emotion when it came out. And you know that they're going to be very fair and unbiased. But they say, I'll stand by the shiny metallic cliffs of Big Country's Steel Town LP against a world-sneering X1. But their new single, the first BC stuff for two years, is a threat to world peace. Adamson and company are due to visit the Soviet Union in the near future. And if the peace-loving peoples of that nation hear this pathetic excuse for Western pop culture, it could restart the Cold War inside six or seven bars. Elton John is one thing. 
but banks of foreigner-type guitars and drums being played by a man with tower blocks for sticks are entirely another. Seal those borders while you can, comrades. <laughs> so, that was pretty savage. Holy smokes. So, yes, I would not even remotely go that far. But, um, yeah, I, 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 I totally understand what you're saying. It's like it's, it's so different from, from the big country that most of us put up on a pedestal. But who knows when that person came to the band? You never know. Yeah, that's the thing. If, if that was the first song, then you have uh, the nostalgia aspect. And uh, I know full well that nostalgia is a very powerful thing. Uh, yeah. I, I, I have my favorites with lots of different bands that signal when I came into it. You can really sort of pinpoint that that was the moment. There are some KISS fans out there who think Crazy Nights is their best album. So, I mean, who can who can explain this <laughs> nonsense? I know many of them. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's not my favorite. And yeah. That's... It's 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 my favorite with a negative uh, front connotation. <laughs> That's my piece in our time for a kiss, but yeah, yeah, it yeah, might. yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, we've said a lot about this tune. I mean, to me, there are some beautiful moments in it. As the years have passed, I really appreciate the verses more. But uh, yeah, I think it's a perfect example of of the dichotomy and the the difficulty that they were having writing for someone else versus writing for yourself. And uh, yeah. I think they were confused. Stuart was confused as to what to do, and I think it comes through in this song. Yeah. I have a feeling we have the same ranking for this song. Maybe not, but we should be close. My ranking is number nine. Oh, my God. Well, it's ten for me. <laughs> well, you got me curious now. Yeah, I'll put it at number out. nine. I, I, I wrote this up quick. I might Maybe I'll come to regret that, but uh, for now it's number nine. <laughs> okay. One thing, last thing I'll say about it is I, I thought it was funny uh, when they played this song live in the beginning. They used to actually use an ebo to play that little ebo part, and as you said, it's a, it's a really short part, and it was always so funny to see Stuart like run back and grab the ebo for just like ten <laughs> seconds, and then he'd put it back, and, then, and very quickly after that first few times playing it, they just they just played it normally. They just picked the part instead of using the ebo. Yeah, I'm surprised they didn't use the keyboard for that. That's true. Josh yeah. Phillips. Yeah, I should have done something. When he could sample panpipes, I'm sure he could sample an Ebo sound. Is he a, is he a um, honorary singing lady, Josh Phillips? I would uh, keep him a notch above the singing lady in the tier of uh, honorary mentions. All right. He's close. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's close to something. Okay, guys, we're going to have to wrap up this episode here. We have talked for nearly two hours, 15 minutes, and we have made it one song into the album. So, yes, we are back with a deep dive in our usual style. Uh, hopefully things will move a bit quicker after this, because I think uh, a lot of what we had to say about the album in general also fit into the King of Emotion discussion, plus our huge uh, intro to the whole album and... Uh, the situation around it so we should be flying from here on out and we'll be back in episode 62 with the second part of this deep dive until then have at you
I can't imagine anybody seeing King of Emotion a video or whatever and thinking, "Oh, who is this? Wow, this is the best band I've ever seen." <laughs> <laughs> oh god that's great oh. uh, see, oh, yeah. we're, we're, we're wasting our best line <laughs> we should just start i just happened to find that this morning so yeah i'm, I'm glad you did 10 minutes of research and found it <laughs> I did. not even that <laughs> <laughs> well and if you remember too um the producer of the seer um gosh What's his name? Why can't I think of his name all of a sudden? You usually refer to him as Robin Miller. Robin Miller, Miller, yes. 